0: And so that overstretches into learning who the diner is. We only sell tickets. We don't accept walk-ins. We do a lot of research pre and post their visits. I can see when they book. I can look at their social media. I can understand who they are. I can understand what's going on with them, what they like, what they don't like. You know, we can find out when their birthday is because they tell us, and then we can check in with them when it is their birthday. We can follow them on Instagram. They can follow us back. I get to become like their private chef in their own life whether I'm cooking all their food for them or
1: not. I'm Danny Vallant, and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. This week on Dirty Linen, we're talking about hospitality business models. What works, what doesn't, what's harder than it used to be, and how can COVID be an opportunity to do things differently for the better? To finish off this week of conversations about rethinking restaurants and new business models, I'm really excited to be chatting to my first international guest, Eric Rivera from Atto in Seattle in the USA. I've been following Eric on Twitter for a while and uh, I just love, I love his passion. I love how annoyed he gets about stuff sometimes. Uh, He's really opinionated and he's incredibly creative. Uh, he's been rethinking restaurants for a long time and he's never had such a good opportunity to do it and to do it again and to do it again as during COVID. So, Eric, thank you so much for chatting to Daddy Linen.
0: Amazing. I appreciate it. That was, that was a good intro. I like that. <laughs> no, thanks for having me on. That's That's awesome. <laughs>
1: yeah well thank you for being here um i think it's going to be so interesting for my audience in australia to hear about how things are going in the us i mean obviously we see a lot of news but there's nothing like getting straight to the source and talking to somebody who's in the thick of it so yeah tell me what tell me what things are like at the moment um it's
0: i would say like anxiety and at an all-time high and it's just there's a lot of crazy stuff that's happening here. having to manage expectations of diners versus playing against the government because they're irresponsible (laughs) versus every single day there's something new um, and not in a good way. Uh, It's, it's very, it's very scary time for everybody. Um, But then we also have people that just kind of don't care and they're doing their own thing, um, which is leading to more cases. And then we have a government on our side that is kind of just like, yeah, they're kind of done worrying about it, and they're worried about other things that isn't this. So it's just a—it's like the perfect storm. It's a perfect nightmare. It's the worst scenario thing that you can think of being in. Um, and that's just me running a restaurant, you know.
1: <laughs> it's like—I mean, if you wanted to, you could open to to dine-in customers now, right? Like there are people around you who are, are taking people into the restaurant, but you're not right. doing
0: that, right? No, I mean, and I actually have. Yeah, I have, a, I have a very interesting restaurant design that would actually be perfect for it. I have high ceilings. I have all of these windows that open up to the outside. We have actually space for outdoor seating. Um, but that doesn't do enough for me. Um, meaning if I have diners in my space, which I'm allowed to have up to 50% occupancy at a time, um, not knowing and with the way that testing works here, um, I can have somebody sitting in the dining room that could be infected and I wouldn't know until two days later. So essentially what I'm doing is rolling the dice, trusting them, hopefully that they don't have it because either we take their temperature at the door, but that's still not a test (laughs) that guarantees anything of them coming in and not infecting our staff or other people or other diners. Um, So for me, uh, it's having to, understand what the guidelines are and then just saying, well, that's not good enough. That's an absolute minimum. I want it to be where I need it to be.
1: So you're saying that the guidelines from the government are pretty loose. Uh, you, you don't have to do any collection of um, diner details. It's it's just, it's pretty much 50, 50% occupancy and you guys work out the rest. So the onus is on the business owners to uh, communicate your own particular policies to diners.
0: Exactly. And there's no, enforcement of anything um, so there's not a health department that's coming through to check anything uh, that hasn't happened there's no government entity that's saying like hey you need to submit a plan that's not happening um, you know all of the steps and parts and pieces that we have in place for ourselves is things that I've created to stay ahead of that game uh, to stay ahead of the systems that don't exist and so and and that's just basically just trying to keep staff safe (laughs) you know because i don't trust them i don't trust the government to make sure that the way that they put everything in verbiage is restaurants are restaurants so a large gigantic chain like a mcdonald's is seen the same as me that has less than 10 employees Um, and we're playing by the same rules which is insane to me
1: and and you're not backward in coming forward about the way you think people should be operating and the the way that you think diners should be behaving so i mean So tell me about some of the things that you've been communicating and how you feel like that's been received by people.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think a lot of people here want to be coddled um, and don't understand reality um, and have to be told as such, like it's a very passive aggressive way where you have to tell them, hey, things are bad. And then follow it up with 10 more conversations between you can tell them, no, actually things are bad. Um, (laughs) I think things are bad already. And I've gotten to the point where I don't want to mix my message with everybody who's being soft on it. And if I have to come out and tell you to wear a fucking mask, you're going to wear a fucking mask. Um, and there's no if, butts or buts about it. It's going to be just that way blunt. Um, if I have people going, well, why don't, you know, I have people emailing sometimes, oh, when are you going to open up for dining? And I was like, when you pay the bills. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when you're responsible for the safety of my staff, when you understand and th- what everything means here and how just because you want to come and have a beer or or have a, a cool tasting menu that we do that doesn't mean like the people behind you or around you are going to be safe you know so that's you looking out for yourself rather than looking out for everybody and i don't i don't play to that
1: so you feel like people people feel like you know coming to a restaurant is their human right
0: right and and i feel like that because that's the way it's basically been treated um you know we got marked as meaning restaurants as essential businesses um and so You know, we were allowed to do delivery and takeout and all this other stuff, but now it's like a different level where people are treating it. After being in their house for you know three and a half months, four months, they're treating it like a celebration. You know, they're treating it like the ticker tape parade of like finally restaurants are back. We can do whatever. Yeah, it's been a long time, and it's just a really dangerous like self care mentality where people are coming in and they're kind of like blind to what the reality of the situation is. And they'll sit down in a dining room and they'll order their shitty like two dollar beer and get their food, which is probably like frozen French fries or something. It doesn't even matter. It could be something that's super expensive, but they're taking away the reality of what the you know virus is. They don't get it really, and so they're taking this temporary like. Dine in service for 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And they're running with it just so they can say, like, Hey, I shared this fit. Oh, good to be back. It's dope. Like, look at this Instagram post. Oh, wow. It's so good. And I'm like, Was it worth it? Because in two days from now, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be sick from that. And then on their side, then what? Then what they're going to the hospital. They're, they could die. <laughs> and I'm like, Well, essentially, like, you just glossed over your last meal. Is it that important still? it's not. It's, it's, it's very dire and and very like dark to think that way, but that's the reality of the situation. And that's kind of like how I get frustrated and annoyed at people and we'll call them out. I don't care who it is. It's, you know, chefs that have 20 restaurants and worth millions of dollars. And, you know, if they're going to, act like that's not a big deal and they can oh i figured something out i'm like i didn't realize you were a fucking doctor (laughs) that's crazy (laughs) you know like you make cool dishes but that doesn't mean you know everything or and i don't know everything either but i'm gonna err on the side of caution
1: so because case numbers in seattle it's what around 500 a day
0: yeah so we just started going down i mean not even like a week and a half ago um 20 30 a day and then all of a sudden everybody started to be able to get lined up back into doing dining service and and other things you know parks and pools and all this other stuff so then they started jumping back up to 200 or 300 or 400 or 500 and so now it's, it's just starting to like ramp up again and then we have places like Florida and if on Florida this past weekend in one day it was 9,000 cases in California it's you know they're getting like 40,000 cases over a couple days period of time Arizona is just like going crazy and so I'm seeing all this stuff, and I'm and I see it, and I know that those people are gonna. There's gonna be people there that have money and means, and they're gonna guess what they're gonna do. They're gonna travel up this way because we have less numbers, so it's just to create that much more of a problem. Um, and you know, I think talking about it and going like, "Oh, it's 500," like we're talking about it barely, but that's a lot. <laughs> you know, that's a lot, and a lot of people don't really realize that either. So it's just it's it's tough having to like understand that on a level, but then seeing really how bad it is because it is that bad.
1: So put us in the picture of what Seattle's like or, or used to be like. It's, um, I mean, there's a vibrant dining scene and, and tell us about your place in it.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, we we've always been kind of on the outside um, of what the dining scene is. We've always done different things. We've always done different experiences. So it's, it's very atypical, uh, but the, the scene is, is, is pretty cool. I mean, it's been growing over the last couple years, you know, Amazon's based here. We have a lot of tech that's based here. So there's a lot of influx of money. Um, and so it's a lot of restaurants that have been thriving and expanding and, you know, places that had like two restaurants to their name. Now they had 10. Now they had 20. So there's it was a big boom town. Um, and that was happening all over. and Housing prices are booming and all this crazy stuff. Um, you know, people are getting attracted from other companies in San Francisco. And so they're moving up here and it's a deal for them. San Francisco is expensive. So there's a lot of variables that we've been seeing on a positive side for growing the city. And so that's pushed the cuisine more here, too, uh, because people are, you know, in San Francisco or they're in New York or being, you know, coming from around the world where they've eaten at really cool Michelin star restaurants. And so it's given them a, a little bit more of an eye opening and it pushes us, you know, more on the high end to, to kind of like give them what they're used to seeing or overthink something kind of like how I do it and give them something they haven't seen
1: before. So well, tell us about your restaurant. And tell us about what you've been doing.
0: Yeah. I mean on my side I, I, this store all started off in my apartment it was two seats at a time and I do I was doing tasting menus and I've been doing um, you know pop-ups around the city and kind of at different price points and then finally got my brick and mortar space here about a year and a half ago um, and so then from there we do anywhere from we were doing dining service anywhere from three to five different experiences a night ranging from like a 20 course tasting menu, a chef's table or dining room, uh, our main dining room service, which is more casual. Um, and you know, in a a year, we're doing more than a hundred different experiences. Um,
1: so just, just explain that a little bit. So just, what does that mean? A hundred different experiences. It just sounds, sounds crazy, mad, unfeasible, but great. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> um,
0: it, it's a, it's just a function of me understanding what the data and analytics of the business are and how to drive that revenue. Um, so for me, it's, okay, cool. Can we do a chef's table? Yes. Would people come to that? Yes. Would they pay a amount for it? Yes. Okay. So I have 2,000 other square feet within the space um, that I'm paying rent on. How do I fill that space with something else? It can't be that expensive because it's not at the chef's table. So I had to attach a dollar amount to each seat per experience across a week. So there's dynamic pricing. There's variables of that. So a Wednesday is less expensive than a Saturday night. Um, so then the pricing dictates, dictates what kind of cuisine we're going to be doing, um, which could be anything from Italian food, French food, Puerto Rican food, um, Szechuan cuisine, you name it. Uh, or things that are very specific to um, dining, you know, so time travel or, you know, our crazy 20 course, 60 menus that change every couple months. Um, and so it allows us to kind of, you know, I, I kind of imagine it being like, you know, like a candy store type thing or just being able to do whatever we want, which is really nice.
1: But it's the real thing that you want. It's like it's Puerto Rican food, right? Yeah. So tell me, tell me about, tell me about your background.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. I, I grew up here uh, in Washington state um, about 45 minutes off of Seattle. Uh, my dad's military and my parents met in puerto rico they're puerto rican and my dad basically joined the army and i'm the first person my family was born stateside so um for me it's been very different i grew up in largely white <laughs> neighborhoods because that's pretty much all there is here and so having to be different uh just from that culturally has been very insane to kind of have a whole lifetime of doing that but also seeing it from a different point of view of people that are my guests or our clients that we work with, or it's basically just allowed me to speak their language uh, and work with them. But then also having to show them, you know, this is what my cuisine is and this is what I grew up with. And I'm the only person in Seattle that has this style of cuisine. You know, we're the only restaurant in you know a town of a million people that does Puerto Rican cuisine, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I know that on a business side, that isn't enough to be a whole business so that's why we also do all these other things
1: so I mean would you if you could do anything you wanted would you rather cook just Puerto Rican food um
0: ideally I think that's maybe like a later in life thing um it, it would be cool um I don't know honestly I don't think it'll take off <laughs> even at that point um I'm just realistic um but it would be cool to do that and then some sort of a, like you know the chef tasting menus that we're doing and that would be cool because that's fun for me and that's fun for the staff. Um, And we're pretty good at it. Uh The other stuff in the middle of having to do like a hundred different experiences, I don't necessarily know. <laughs> that's what I want to keep doing forever. It's fun. It's, it's really out there, but it's helped define who we are and we can turn on a dime uh, for anything that kind of like comes our way.
1: Uh I have like, 85 different directions that I want this conversation to go in because everything is so interesting um I don't know where to start okay let's talk about Puerto Rican food because I think in Australia most people wouldn't know much about it so yeah if I think Puerto Rican food I think like rice beans uh yeah well tell me what I should be thinking
0: yeah I mean there's a lot to it um there's a you know it stems all the way back from original native cuisine which is how you know Indian cuisine uh that was there on the island and then you had you know colonizing Spanish kind of coming through <laughs> and they came through and kind of brought their own cuisine. And then you had like things like the triangle trade, um, which brought like African-American culture, African culture brought, you know, even stemming to a point where it, when Fido Castro kicked everybody out that wasn't Cuban, um, there was Chinese people that emigrated to uh, Puerto Rico and there's even, there's own style of Chinese cuisine that's Puerto Rican. Uh, so there's all these different things and there's all these different spices that we use. There's all these It's it's just it's wild uh, how vast it is Um, because I even talk to people who are Indian or you know black or whatever else and we're like man you do that too (laughs) and we're like yeah it's different Um, but it's it's just really kind of cool so it's it's a very wide range but on the surface of it it's very basic at home food Um, just because there's not a lot of money there's not a lot of like you know pomp and circumstance towards it it is rice and beans and every meal has rice and beans in it. Um, there is like pork and it's braised and it's things are cooked forever. And, you know, people talk like comfort cuisine. It's basically a culture that's based on that, uh, with the addition of things like plantains and the different ways that those things are done. Uh, and then introducing restaurant culture to people, you know, we elevated that And I would say over the last maybe 30, 40 years, um, right. that's been something there where people have actually, you know, pushed the cuisine even that much more, which is, it's, it's just really cool seeing the evolution of it.
1: Yeah, it's, um. I mean, it, so you've grew up, I guess, a mon- as a minority in a very white city. Like, how did the Black Lives Matter protests strike you and, and how did you and your staff get involved?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, for me, um, having a filter <laughs> of seeing that my entire life, um, meaning, like, being on the outside, being a Puerto Rican kid, growing up around white people, um, It's it's been a long time coming. Uh, there's been a lot of ways that, like, it should have been addressed a lot more. It should have been addressed a lot earlier. For hundreds of years now, um, you know, black people have been having to take the back seat to everything. Um, they've had their culture stolen from them in many different ways. They've had their property stolen from them in many different ways. Everything, every single thing and way that you can think about, black people has been stripped away from them completely and monetized by white people um, <laughs> in order for their gain. And you can look at that even in modern day times where you have, you know, like sports are big here and you have, you know, majority of black players playing and they don't get paid what they deserve. And you have billionaire people going like, Oh yeah, they're asking for too much money. It's, it's racism, (laughs) you know? So it's, it's, it's out and about and it's not as seen through a lot of people because they're just used to it, meaning like white people. Um, And then you have things that happen when, you know, police officers here are really like the military and they're really unchecked. And it allows them to kind of amplify what their needs are over an entire race of people. And so then we have things that pop up where some, you know, someone on video catches somebody else killing somebody. Or, and that's not just one instance. It's many. Or police officers that shoot people and kill them. It's not one instance. It's many. So then it's seeing this all finally come to this head, which it has in the past month, um, where it's a pandemic. Pandemic, people are at home. They have more time to go protest, and so then they're going to do that. And every different avenue of that happening is a product of society, just like ignoring them for so long. And so on our side, it's been you know working with other chefs to you know take food to the area where people are protesting. You know, having people that are protesting walk by the restaurant, and we're like handing out free food. (laughs) You know, telling them keep going, like you know know, keep keep protesting, keep doing your thing. Um, and even closing a restaurant down so you know staff and employees can go protest and having to close the restaurant down early on some nights because we want to make sure our, our staff can get home and either go protest or just be safe from <laughs> a person, you know something scaling up and then them being in the way in danger, it's just it's looking at all of that it's it's more of a priority to me than what the restaurant is or what anything else is. So I value that the movement and the reality of what Black Lives Matters is more than what we are doing here. It's more important.
1: Let's pull back a little bit and just talk a bit more about how you come to be doing what you're doing. So just tell me a little bit about how you got into cooking and, uh, yeah. And what happened next?
0: Yeah, I got into cooking, um, at an early age. My parents were both working and some of my grandparents, uh, had moved from Puerto Rico to here and then they, um, basically my grandpa was the cook. My grandma didn't cook at all. And so I would help him make breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, every day for my parents, you know, when they get back or for, you know, for ourselves just to eat. And so it was every day, you know, he was retired. And so I'd sit there and he had a little stepping stool for me and I'd stir soups or I'd make whatever, you know, like five, six year old kid. Um, And so that's how I kind of got into it. Then, um, you know, they left and went back to Puerto Rico and then, my first job was like a bus boy (laughs) when I was 15. Uh, And then I pursued another career and then I decided, you know, I don't, I I got swept up in the last recession. Uh, I was in mortgage insurance and financial services. So when I was like 25, 26 years old, I basically had to shut down my business, lay a bunch of people off, close everything and start from scratch. And so I said, I want to put myself somehow in a position that even if I lose everything again, at least I can make decent food for myself. Um, So I, pursued cooking professionally. Uh so for me it was doing that. I went around the city and I had my little resume and nobody would hire me. Um nobody took me seriously. So then I went to culinary school um with no money basically (laughs) and student loans. Uh and started to really like understand what the reality of being successful in this industry was and is. And I started to see a lot of systematic problems that I knew I can push through. Um, but I knew I just had to stay quiet for a little while uh, before I could really open myself up and open my voice up. Um, and so I started you know, working at different restaurants and you know, some of the best restaurants in the world and Three Star Michelin this and whatever else. And then
1: I started to... Just do it, do a little... Stop and do a little bit of name dropping Yeah. Us. So when
0: I, <laughs> um, when I was at school, um, I'd staged at Noma at the time. They were like the number one restaurant in the world. Um, I've worked in other kitchens around the world when I worked at Alinea in Chicago. Um, they're three star Michelin restaurant. Um, I've pretty much met every big name chef you can think of, even Australian ones too. Ben (laughs) Shuri, you know, like all these guys. And I've, I've seen them, I've worked with them at a capacity and understood what made them tick, what made them move, how they got to stuff, whether it was deserved or not. Um, and I, I was like, okay, that's how you play the game. Uh, and so then I started to like formulate what my way to play the game would be. And it's been very evolved ever since of, you know, seeing them having a dish, you know, for, I'll give a quick example of like Heston Blumenthal. They didn't change the menu at Fat Duck for years and they had all their classics and everything else. And then they hit a point where it was, you know, people were kind of not as excited about it anymore. So you started to change, but on a massive level, um, I was like, I understood how much money that would take to do something at that level. And I was like, I'll never have that much money. And I never have anybody that's going to believe in me to give me that much money. So I need to think about doing this in a very different way. Um, I don't have investors. I now won't take any. Um, I've literally taken every dollar that I've had to put it back into the business and do it. You know, I still haven't paid myself a salary (laughs) three years into this thing now. And so it's, it's just been very, it's, I've prioritized things very differently for what I want out of this industry and what I want for myself and then the business too. So it's it's led me to be very, like, aggressive but also careful because if I get to a point where I'm trying to overthink things and it's not responsible, then we can close overnight.
1: So, I mean, the thing I see when I look at your website or see what you're doing on Twitter or hear people talking about the restaurant, it's this it's – this- it's this really amazing balance between being super hard nosed and you're talking about, you know, each seat has a dollar value, but then being incredibly creative where it just, I just feel like to be inside your head must be a very busy place to be where there's just so many ideas flowing around. So can you just put us in the picture, like just, um, just going from this idea before the pandemic, when you were already doing quite a lot of different, I guess, different models of feeding people within the restaurant. And then just talk about you take Just start there with some of the things you were doing in a bit of detail and then talk about some of the <laughs> absolutely crazy high-concept things that you're doing now.
0: Yeah. I mean, when we were a restaurant, I mean, going back to just talking about dine-in service, um, and we were, re- we were really good at it. Uh, we'd, we'd had this following. We had these people that would come in more than 100 times a year uh, for everything, and brunch or dinner. And we created that model. Um, it's, it, there's nobody else that does this. And I, and I know that for a fact, I've, I've worked in restaurants and I get it, but this is a function of me going like, how can I adapt to, to the diner to, instead of treating us like a restaurant, they treat us like a brand, um, and they trust the brand, you know? So if you're going to buy shoes, you're going to buy a Nike, but they also make running shoes and, you know, basketball shoes and everything else. You just know that that's where you get your stuff from. So it is attributing that brand mentality to the restaurant rather than just going like, you can just get uh, eggs and avocado from us, right? Um, and so that overstretches into learning who the diner is. We only sell tickets. We don't accept walk-ins. Um, we do a lot of research pre and post their visits. I can see when they book. I can look at their social media. I can understand who they are. I can understand what's going on with them, what they like, what they don't like. You know, we can find out when their birthday is because they tell us and then we can check in with them when it is their birthday. We can follow them on Instagram. They can follow us back. You know, it's it creates a very different outside of the restaurant mentality um, where I get to become like their private chef in their own life, whether I'm cooking all their food for them or not. Um, And they get to understand who our staff is. They get to learn who they are. They get to be, you know... Oh, that's so cool! Like you know, Ingrid, my girlfriend, you know, she'll go hang out with the guests because they'll be like, "Hey, you want to go do like a fun run, five k thing?" And they're, "Yeah, you should come." And so it becomes a different model, um, which is very approachable on both sides. Um, but we know who they are, and they know who we are, and it's it's a really cool thing. Um, and and that's something that I don't I don't know people do, but it's the way that I want to have my restaurant. Like I want to know who's here and why they're here and why they came and why they decided to spend you know, a dollar with us um, and then what they're trying to get out of it. And so you know, then that puts pressure on us to execute and then to really define what it is we really want from this place. Um, and that's the, the idea of everything, changing that over to something in the middle of a pandemic, having those relationships with a lot of the people already it was easy for us to turn that on a dime because then having us deliver to them, meaning from the restaurant and being at their doorstep, they already trust us. So it, it presents a very different point of view than random restaurant down the street that you're getting takeout from and some random person's coming to your house. It was never that. We have our own delivery system. We have our own delivery drivers that are actually our employees. It becomes, oh, it's auto and they're here you know that's awesome thanks guys it, it's a very different point of view but it's it's purely a function of having to change on a dime but having them trust us the entire way so when we do things in a house um you know it it initially it was like we need to sell meat seafood <laughs> and be pantry and i can figure out a way to get different types of flour i can figure out a different way to like you know, find the things that people couldn't get at the grocery store. I was finding them because we were going through different channels, um, wholesale distribution. So I I was like, I was that guy. I was like, you need that? I got that. You need toilet paper? No problem. Um, You know, going from selling, you know, A5, A5 Japanese wagyu, you know, cut and cooked in front of them. I was actually selling it so they can do it at home. Um, I was also selling pasta that we make, you know, so everything from like a dollar of like active dry yeast all the way up to a whole spectrum full of things. But then it evolves and it goes, okay, cool. So we've got that grocery part for them taken down. What other stuff can we do that is a little bit more us meaning them dining at home. Okay, cool. So we're doing that now, but don't you think that's kind of one-sided and boring? What else can we do to elevate that even more? Okay, cool. It's an in-home dining experience where we have, a playlist on YouTube that lets them feel like they're taking a first class flight. They start off by seeing like a safety video. <laughs> they sit down and it shows them going on takeoff. And then it shows them on a plane and there's a playlist of music. You know, meanwhile they're acting like at themselves, they're, they're doing like a first class thing. So it's champagne and caviar and whatever else that's on the higher level of stuff that we do. Um, you know, even an in-home camping experience where they, we actually sent them a camping or a tent And they were setting it up at home and we had this like live playlist that went through and it was them walking through the forest and setting up camp. And then at nighttime it turns into nighttime and there's ambient sounds and noises. And we had people there sending us pictures and it was them like making their entire living room look like a campsite. So they're taking flowers and plants and all the stuff and going like, how do you think we did? (laughs) You know, so it becomes something very different. Um, It allows us to be, in their home at that point because they're taking pictures and showing us and they're like, this is so cool that you guys are doing this. And I'm like, that's what I want to see because I'm used to having them, you know, a foot away from me and I can interact with them here. I can do that while they're at home and we can do it responsibly. Um, I don't have to force them to come here to get something. I can send it to them. Um, and we do, you know, not only that for local people, but we also do like nationwide shipping of some of our experiences too. So, you know, I have virtual cooking classes where anybody can tap into them. Um, and so it becomes this, like, let's think beyond the restaurant's walls again. And how can we get into people in a different way?
1: So the thing that blows my mind is that other people are paying to watch. Tell me about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, we just launched uh, strategy-based dinner games. And so basically what that is is... Um, <laughs> It's not basically, it's kind of complex. Um, so we have different themes. <laughs> <laughs> we have different themes um, that are there. So one's like Oregon Trail, or one of them's Maso Menos, or one of them's Candyland. Uh, you know, another one is just Hot Sauce Challenge. Um, we figure out what the theme is. We figure out a gaming strategy behind that. And then we get on like a Zoom call, and then they can fight against each other to give them a prize. And the prize can be for one of them, like Maso Menos is additional things to add to their meal. Um, so everybody starts off with a base entree. They can add an appetizer. They can add a dessert. They can add a bottle of champagne. They can add caviar. But if they lose, they just end up with that base entree, which they can actually lose portion size. So they can end up with a really small portion of it. Um, you know, we have one that's a hot sauce challenge. It's seven hot sauce. One's like, you know, kind of sort of spicy all the way to something that's 2 million Scoville units. Um, but it's a function of them being on zoom. We're all eating it together. We're all dying in front of each other with, you know, crying and, you know, hot sauce. And people are just like freaking out going, this is so hot. But the function of that, it leads to this entertainment mode for the diner, but we allow people to then tap in, they pay us $5 and they can watch. Um, so it, it becomes like a different system where it's like in-home entertainment, um, for a period of time, it could be a half an hour, hour and a half. Um, we have a cooks versus cooks challenge. And so we send them with kind of like a blind box of stuff, Very similar to like a top chef kind of vibe, but it's them doing it. I'm judging. There's people that are paying to watch to judge and they're judging. And then the peers, meaning all the cooks will judge each other. Um, and then I don't tell them what I'm looking for. So they're just kind of like, okay, cool. But secretly on the back end, I'm like, your kitchen's a disaster. You lose points for that. You know, <laughs> you know, the, the the picture that you sent us, it's okay, but it could have used a little bit more of, you know, brightness in there, you know, so it's, it, it becomes this like more of them. If they had their own restaurant at home with the same judgment theory that I have when I have my restaurant here, it's them as a guest coming in and it's me <laughs> treating them the same way. Right. So that's, that's the coolest part about it for me is that I go like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the, I'm the Yelp guy now. Here we go. <laughs>
1: Give <laughs> payback time,
0: yeah, yeah, it's
1: so amazing, it's so incredibly creative um like you know if for someone here who was listening to this and just you know kind of amazed like but they haven't i guess created necessarily that community of people who trust them to to this extent, I mean of course, a lot of them have got so many people that trust them as well, but what what advice could you give to somebody who wants to i i guess uh yeah, just add another income stream, um, and rethink the way that they're doing business. Um, I think
0: part of it for me is I create things based off of things I wish I could be doing instead. (laughs) If that makes sense. What do you mean? Um, I wish that somebody could cook me all these things. I wish I could play a strategy based dinner game. I wish I could play video games at home. I wish I could do all these other things. (laughs) And that's not the case. I have a restaurant. I have a responsibility. I have to be here. I have a staff, you know, we have a business. And so a function of that is just going like, man, if I could do anything right now, what would that be? What would that look like? What would that, you know, what would my menu be? And so then it becomes to be what you see, you know, what they see. Um, So it's, it's basically adapting to the time adapting to the structure of the reality of what today is, but then also not ignoring it, but playing into it in order to get something out of it that could be, you know, an escape for half an hour to an hour and a half, um, but having a mutual transaction there of them buying it (laughs) and then you being able to execute that, which is very, which is very like basic.
1: So are you saying like, you're sort of looking for an opportunity? Like people are at home more than, more than usual. They're a bit bored. It's like, uh, people are scared. You don't want people coming to your restaurant. So it's like spinning that into an opportunity. How can you be creatively and make it a win for both, both sides?
0: Yeah. And you know, Again, like having to see restaurants that are doing dine-in service right now, um, it puts me in a position where it's not like I'm trying to fool the system. I just don't trust other restaurants right now to know that they're doing the right thing with enforcing all these rules that nobody's really looking at. So for me, it's like, I'm not going to introduce these things that do the same thing or play in their same field because I don't think it's safe personally. I don't have any inclination or want right now to go dine-in at a restaurant. Why would I do that? Um, like I don't have any 0%. Um, and especially if it's not good food, then I can make that. Um, so there's really nothing I've seen that would get me excited to go do something. So for me, it's like, well, if I, if I've stuck at my house, what's our best case scenario? And so that's where I'm trying to create things and, you know, work with the team here to then turn around and go, do you think this would be cool? (laughs) Would you spend X amount of dollars on this? tell me why, or, ah, that's so far out there that it might just be something where people are okay with it being so far out there.
1: Right. And I guess, is it sometimes about the timeline? Like you don't, you don't put it out for tomorrow. You put it out for a few weeks, a few weeks away.
0: Yep. The hardest ones that I'm like, the ones that are so far out there, I usually leave for about six to eight weeks out. And then from there I'm like, "Ah, I wonder if they're going to buy this. And then there's going to be like a cutoff point where I'm like, no, I need to kill it. that doesn't happen very often. Uh, there's usually people that buy in, but then it's a matter of how many people will buy in, um, which really starts to dictate and drive um, how much better the experience can be. Like how much more can I, you know, put in my head of going, like, "All right, now or this is going to be like a profitable experience." <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I can overthink it and go like, "Oh, I can add this now, and we can add this other thing now," and it it becomes a very cool thing um, to treat. little experiences like their own little restaurants but yeah on a larger level as as a business owner i can go i just need to manage the revenue you know so if there's one that sucks um that's on me if there's one that's good it worked (laughs) but i'm not i'm not living and dying by every single one expecting them to be that when there's almost 40 of them and they change all the time
1: and you're keeping your staff employed and you're making enough money to keep the restaurant going exactly
0: and you know we have things that we offer employees and you know it's it's very different. It's very atypical from a restaurant um, here in America. It's 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 not it's not anything like anything else.
1: What do you mean? What do you offer employees? Um, benefits, you know,
0: medical benefits. That's <laughs> on a, a restaurant the size of mine. Uh, there's not a lot of restaurants that do that. Um, that's usually left for restaurants that have over 100 people. You know, um, it's it's actually working with them on schedules and what days work best for them and there's a lot of stuff that we do that's very different. And even I don't know of many restaurants that were paying their employees to have a day off to go protest Uh, on that level. Like it's just, it, it allows me to like work with people and understand on a different way. But I mean, my restaurant isn't for everybody. Not everybody wants to work this hard or try this hard to understand the 40 different things that are in my head at once. Um, So we have guests, you know, we have guests and employees that go like, this is too much. And I'm like, no, totally understand. I, you know, a BLT is good too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and we'll do that, <laughs> but we'll do it once and never do it again. You know, um, the people then turn into going like, but what would you do with a BLT? And I'm like, well, I would do this, 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 and this. And they're like, Oh shit, that sounds dope. And you know, it, it becomes a conversation or a tease or a different way to think of what the space is and, it drives everything. It really does, and it drives like what the expectation is for our employees. We like they just left right now. Typically, when we were dine-in, they were leaving at you know eleven o'clock midnight. Our stuff is so dialed in with the way the changeovers from the pandemic. All of our prep and people are picked up and delivered to by like four to five o'clock every
1: day. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, Eric, so everybody's, everybody's gone. Yeah. <laughs> So that's, that's good. They're, they're off there. Yeah. What are they going to be doing? They've just Netflix, order some crazy BLTs. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I, one of them, one of, one of my guys, I gave him a, a roasted pig head a couple nights ago and I guess him and his roommate are gonna order pizza and just pick the pork apart and put it on the pizza. I was like, that sounds dope.
1: Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Um, so let's finish off. Let's let's get out your crystal ball and we'll ra- we'll wrap this up. Let you get on with your own evening. Um, wh- where do you think things are going? And, and and what do you think the restaurants are gonna look like out the other side of this?
0: Um, here, things are gonna get worse. <laughs> I know that. I can see it. Um, it's gonna get really bad for a while. Um, the economy's gonna get it's going to be bad for a couple of years. I learned that from the last recession. <laughs> it took people two to three years to really kind of get out of the idea of the recession. And it really took them five to seven years to spend again. Like it didn't matter. Uh, so that's going to happen here. Um, it's going to change the way that dining happens. Even on my side, I have a year and a half left on the lease here. I'm already thinking of what I should do. Should I resign a lease here or am I just paying for a lot of empty space? Um, which means to me, I can do a lot of production if I was in a nondescript place. I don't necessarily have to have a dining room like we have right now. Uh, I can take on a lot less guests, um, and do something like that and be a lot more efficient. And so I'm thinking of ways of, you know, to kind of maximize that idea. Um, you know, everybody's just go out for dining things of when you see dining rooms of like hundred to 200 people. Um, it's, it, that's going to go away um i can't imagine places are going to have anything like that i mean even think like bars or restaurants there's a lot of bars and restaurants that are around theater districts and uh sports arenas and all these kinds of things and they're all dead you know they're in my eyes those places are never opening up probably again Uh, and that could be for two three years out before you know they're going to allow 50,000 people in the stadium um and so there's there's a lot of massive change that's about to come and we're just really 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 getting started
1: so you're going to be keeping the crazy ideas flowing?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I have no choice. I, I, I Again, I, I don't have investors. I don't have anybody to <laughs> fund this or push it in the direction that I need to – I'm not willing to listen. <laughs> I think that's another part too. Um, because we're doing this through a pandemic, we're still here. So for me, if I just keep changing the ideas and we keep on going in different directions always – that's going to be beneficial for us rather than just going like, all right, now we've got it. And patting myself on the back. I think the second that that happens, we're probably going to close the next day because we think we've made it. And that's not, that's not a mentality that I want to live in for right now um, because we really don't know. It's changing on a daily basis. There's numbers dipping two or three weeks ago. And then all of a sudden, you know, you had these Southern states that were just going, Oh, great. We're all going to open up. And now there are thousands of people per day. And, it's just it's just going to get worse, you know, before it gets better. And we've had, I've got to be realistic with my expectations from what I need from people um, and what the business can do and then even things for myself. And that's just being realistic now. Uh, I would love to paint pretty pictures and rainbows and puppies and all this stuff, but that's just not reality.
1: Eric, uh, it's been amazing to talk to you. And I really hope one day we can eat a pizza with some pig's head on it. Uh, <laughs> That, that would be really fun but in the <laughs> meantime i'm going to keep watching the amazing creative ideas flow from Addo and what you're doing over there in seattle but thank thank you so much for sharing uh your experiences and and things you've learned and yeah a bunch of crazy ideas with us over <laughs> here
0: at dirty linen thank you so much thank you for your time i appreciate it
1: this is dirty linen and i'm danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at dirtylinenpodcast Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Wheats production.